Movements in the unemployment rate, either up or down, are likely to be small. As a result, unemployment is likely to remain at its severely elevated level. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. That was Christina Romer, President Obama's top economic advisor you just heard at the top of the podcast, saying, don't expect good news in the job market next year. On the show today, Adam, we've got a Nobel Prize winner telling us about fighting cows. First, we've got to do our Planet Money indicator. Yes, the indicator today is 9.4%. And that is, in September, there was a 9.4% jump in existing home sales, meaning homes that were not new homes. This, for once, is actually really, really good news. Highest jump in sales in two years, much more than anyone expected. Except, of course, there are reasons not to get too excited. People were grabbing that tax credit before it ran out, the tax credit for buying your first home. So it probably made that number higher than it would have been otherwise. But even with that extra boost, this does show that there is some health returning, we think, to the housing market. And it's certainly a change from the purely miserable news we've been hearing for so long. Right, which is very nice to hear. Um, so, so Adam, I'm still feeling pretty happy about our interview with Eleanor Ostrom yesterday. It was really, it was just fun to talk to her. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. That was one of my favorite interviews in a long time. She won the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics a week and a half ago, and we didn't get a chance to talk to her until yesterday. But that meant she wasn't busy talking to every other reporter in the world. So we got to actually spend some quality time with her. She was at home, she told us, in the middle of writing her Nobel speech. Right, which felt sort of exciting to catch her right in the middle of that. Eleanor Ostrom shared the Nobel with economist Oliver Williamson, um, and we didn't get to talk to him. Maybe we will get to talk to him after they get the, the big medal. So Eleanor Ostrom is probably most famous for her work that questions this idea of the tragedy of the commons. Right. And I I always felt like the tragedy of the commons, you know, was real because it, it just makes a lot of sense to me. So, so the tragedy of the commons says you have some common good like a pasture and you have 100 farmers that use it and nobody owns it. So every time you have that kind of situation, a farmer is going to try to beat out the other guys by using as much as he can as quickly as he can. You see things like this in lots of areas where... A lot of people want to use something, but no particular person owns it. So, you know, fishing in the oceans, you know, some public parks, the Internet. Before Ostrom, the idea of the tragedy of the commons was was generally seen as just the true state of nature. It uh, goes back to a very influential and important article by Garrett Hardin, uh, published in 1968 in Science. And Hardin pictured a pasture open to all and posited that everyone would then put their cows on and try to get the grass off and uh, they would overharvest. He identified a very important problem. Where he was wrong was that he then went on to indicate that the people involved were trapped in a tragic uh, a problem that they could not themselves solve. Solutions had to come from outside. So the the problem being that you have all these people and you have one pasture and there's no limits to how people can use it, so they, they overuse it and they overharvest the pasture. Yes, that was his. And that problem is still a problem. It's just not necessarily a tragedy. 
So that's why I say I want to make a distinction between the tragedy and the problem. And just explain, what's the difference? Well, the problem is that um, uh, that people can overuse, it can be destroyed, uh, and it is a big cha- it's a big challenge to try to figure out how to avoid it. That's a problem. That's real. Uh, the tragedy is the way he f- expressed it. They can't ever solve it. Mm-hmm. That's different. It's inevitable. It's unconquerable. I yeah, you. that's why he called it tragedy. They were trapped. So he was right to identify this as a potential problem. He was wrong to indicate that people were helplessly trapped and the only way out was some external government coming in or dividing it up into small chunks and everyone owning their own. So so Eleanor Ostrom started to notice all these places where where it seemed like the tragedy of the commons should hold, but it actually it didn't. People were acting more as a community rather than everybody just grabbing as much as they could of a common resource. The place she saw that really convinced her that the tragedy of the commons wasn't always and forever true was this farming area in the Swiss Alps. It's a very interesting example and one that was important in my uh, intellectual life because they have common property in the Swiss Alps, and they've had it for centuries. Those Swiss peasants own private land. They farm on private land. They own communally their alpine meadows. So the same persons know the benefit of private, and they're not using it in both places. They're very intelligent. They've had plenty of chance to make decisions over the centuries, and they've chosen common property. In the Alps, it's patchy, and so it snows well in one location and another one not much. So one year, the pasture is rich and all up in the northeast corner, and the next year, it's in the western part, and the next year, it's in the southern part. And if you fenced it, then only one owner or two owners would get the lush ear and everybody else would be out of it. But if you kept the fence around the big commons, you could move the cattle to the lush areas. So how do the peasants manage this? How do they make sure that people don't overgraze, that each individual farmer doesn't try to take too much? And, and this is really the crux of her research, right, Adam? So it, it, it turns out that over centuries, the farmers, they came up with their own system. Each farmer owns their own land nearby, but they also have a right to pasture a certain number of cows in a common area. They figured this out on their own. And the point, Ostrom says, is that this wasn't some rule imposed from above by, you know, the central government in Geneva or something. It was a local solution to a local problem. They came up with their own rules, and it became part of their traditions. And and she said, by the way, that she really loves some of the traditions of Swiss alpine farmers. It was very interesting. I was in Switzerland and watched this. Um, uh, uh, cattle, uh, if they're in the uh, open like that, will follow a leader. A, a cow, and so they have a contest and uh, before they open the uh, commons for the summer of which cow is the strongest. <laughs> and they really do have a contest. It's fascinating to watch. What, do they pull things, or how, how do you No, they, out? They, they put them head on into a tussle. Oh, really? Cows oh, can? Yes, yeah. yes. Um, Wait, and what happens in the contest? They test? Well, they, uh, they put a big number on each of them, uh-huh. 
and then they take two and they put them side by side and you know uh, uh, I don't know how they get them to t- start the tussle but whoever out uh, performs they don't kill one another but one will finally give up whoever wins then goes on to uh, a winner of another one and so they'll have four or five of the tussles at one time and then down and uh, it takes about several two or three hours before they've got this all they finally get the strongest cow of the whole group and that becomes the leader then the cow herd the the herder the uh the uh, uh, farmer or farmer's son or daughter who leads the cows every morning takes that one and leads it and the others follow now, what comes to my mind is... You well, know, I haven't finished. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Then every farmer has a cow right. Uh, those are very well posted. And uh, since there is a shepherd who uh, is responsible for taking the cows up and then milking them and making the cheese and all the rest, there's a way of making sure that farmer X who has a cow right to five only sends five. So they've got very low-cost ways of monitoring that the agreements are kept. How do you go from, the like, the tragedy of the commons sort of makes intuitive sense to me that if you had, you know, one area and everybody has a, a need for that pasture, that they would all act in their self-interest and, and eventually, you know, it would destroy it for the collective. How do you go from that instinct to do that to something like what you're describing where you come up well with I think humans are a little more complex and you're making them out the instinct to survive yes at the time of uh, very extreme difficulties and no trust if I don't trust anyone else oh yes that's my instinct but humans have learned through the centuries you, know, you go way back into our early history where people had to hunt together. So in addition to our self-interest, we have grown up with a much more complex set of interests. A critique I hear an awful lot of economics, certainly mainstream U.S. economics, is that the 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 core unit is an individual, and that individual is pursuing their own self interest. Is your work predicated on individuals pursuing their self interest, but recognizing that their self interest can best be pursued in the context of community, or is your work saying something more radical, which is the core unit of understanding an economy is the group and not the individual? Oh no, I'm not saying the core is the group. No. The core is still an individual, but the individual's a little more complex than the caricature of a um, me first always. The me first always caricature uh, model uh, uh, can be used mathematically to predict outcomes when the problem is pure private goods and you have a highly competitive market. It works. So we don't want to throw it away as a model. But uh, it is that we have to also then also understand that humans are more complex than immediate material self-interest as the only goal. And so humans learn norms and ways of 
expressing themselves and the importance of love of brothers and sisters and uh, their spouse and uh, members of their community. And then instead of taking my individual interest only into account, a human outside of a really narrow market situation can take a broader community into account. But let's take that Swiss example. Is the argument that each farmer is... I thought the argument was each farmer recognizes that they can maximize their output or minimize the risk of of not having the right part of the field in, in any particular winter, that they can maximize their output by being collective, by acting collectively, which is different from them saying, you know what, I'm willing to forego a little bit of profit. I'm willing not to do as well so that the community overall does well. Well, there are two parts to the argument. Uh, one, the first one you mentioned, that they found a solution that does uh, enable them all to do better. They have. The second part of it is but it was time and effort that they had to spend in a community deciding on that and enforcing it. And that requires, uh, that's a second level collective action problem, if you want the technical, uh, and their immediate self-interest doesn't explain it. Why should I go to a community meeting when they're going to go and they'll make a decision and I'll be better off? Right. You're, you could be a free rider on that. There's sure. no, yeah. And so to maintain and sustain a community agreement requires some forms of collective action. So we are both self-interested, but we can also think about our future self-interest, and we also have some desire to work with one another. Yes. I have to say that I, I really love hearing what you're saying because, first of all, it just sounds like the world I live in more than either the self-interest um, extreme or the collective extreme. What you're yeah, describing sounds – Exactly. We don't – I mean the, 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 the group theorists were wrong <laughs> and the me, 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 me only for everything we do are wrong. But it's then people don't like it that we're talking about a more complex because sometimes it's hard to put into a mathematical model. Wait just a moment. No, I can't. Uh, Wait just a moment. Sure. I'm sorry. My husband just saw a beautiful, beautiful deer in our front yard, and he wanted me to be able to see it. Well, that... Did you go see it? Yes. Yeah. And what does it look like? It's beautiful. Um, so so we have a fridge here in the office. It People bring in their lunch. There are, until just a few weeks ago, there were um, salad dressings that had been in there, looked like for many years. People bring little yogurts that were, like, green when you would open them up. And basically, it's just a trashed, packed-full fridge that smells when you open it. To his credit, Robert Smith, a few weeks ago, I think, took it on himself, a reporter here, to clean it out. Um, But there is no, you know, system in which... Well, create one. We have one for our fridge, and we have... uh, uh, We had to create our own rules. They're not university rules. They're our uh, center's rules. How does it work? Well, for one... Um, you can't keep food in the refrigerator overnight without putting your name on it. 
And does someone enforce that every night? Yeah, in the, yeah not uh, a, a policeman, but any of us. Uh, if it starts to get crowded and there are things in there that uh, don't have names, any of us can throw them away. That's the rule. Anyone can throw them away. But, uh, but why do you think that that happened well, at no, your work? let me finish. Sure. Then we have a, a kitchen cleanup uh, thing where all of us, uh, pitch in, and the, we have a mat, we have a calendar up on the refrigerator of who is supposed to do kitchen duty. We're all supposed to clean our own dishes, but at every night someone does a kind of final check, and we have a spatula that goes into our mailboxes on the day that we're supposed to do that. Oh, really? <laughs> so we've divided. Those didn't come overnight, but those have evolved over time, and we have a pretty good kitchen. So, so then I guess just my question is like, what what do you think, what do you think it was about your particular group of people that made that happen? Whereas well, we're, NPR we're studying all can't. of this and uh-huh. aware of it, and realize that if we didn't do it, we were dumb. <laughs> and you guys have got to do the same. All right, because okay. I've been promoting a federal clean your fridge law. <laughs> I'm actually trying to get the UN involved, make it a international. Oh well, then uh, yes, of course that's that's the way to go. Of course, the UN. I hadn't thought of that. Right. And Ostrom, you know, as I think is obvious, believes that solutions that are as local as possible, and whether local means, you know, the NPR New York Bureau or the city you live in or the county or the entire country, what, however big the problem is, the solution should come out of that community, not a bigger one, not the UN, not the federal government, if, if at all possible. And, and what I like about her is that when you, when you study Ostrom's ideas, they do have this practicality. It's like you... You can just start applying them in your house, in your office, in your life right away. Right, and it also it also really comes across that she's not she's not an ideologue. She she doesn't come up with like rigid rules. She just says that like her work shows that local folks can come up with really good solutions to collective problems, and it, it's often best not to impose those rules from above. She says the basic thing that has to happen is some group needs to play the role of problem solver. They need to come up with the rules. And, and often that the group that can do it is the group itself, the group that's facing the problem. But she says she's been misunderstood a lot, that people take what she says in that context to mean she's just a fanatical libertarian and that government is never, ever, ever going to solve any problems. And as, as we found out, she does not have a lot of patience for people misinterpreting her in that way. I've never said government cannot play that role. Right. And in fact, so what you're describing is... that's of mine. I'm just saying that relying only on a national government to solve every problem is a dangerous way of thinking. So you're not saying government should never, ever regulate how we Correct. fish or divide up our land or... Correct. Or the government should always regulate. Correct. <laughs> So, so, Adam, one of the nice things about interviewing Nobel Prize winners a week and a half after they get the Nobel Prize is you can tell what questions they have been asked over and over that really, really piss them off. This was clearly one that she has been asked many times and did not like. She is not against the government. We should make that clear. Exactly. So I think that wraps it up for us today. Please send us your thoughts. Do you see the tragedy of the commons? Have you come up with a unique local solution to some community problem? Let us know at planetmoney at npr.org. We're online at npr.org slash money. We have a Facebook page. You can search Planet Money. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening.